hello everyone. I'm Reverend Carla and welcome to Spirituality Matters, a podcast that focuses on the intersection of spirituality and humanity. Now let's settle in into this sacred space where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together can be just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, this episode, we're going to uh, answer some of my followers' questions. Y'all have some great ones. So as they say in social media land, let's just get started. Okay, the first question, I'm struggling with my response to a nephew requesting donations for a mission trip. I am adamantly opposed to the concept, but A, don't want to be the only one not donating. And B, how much damage can five dumb kids do in a week? It's not like they will be converting anyone. Well, we'll see about that. But the first problem with mission trips that, at least the way I see it, is a lot of times, especially when they're going out of the country, these kids do not know enough about the culture in which they're going to be living for a time, whether it's a week, two weeks, a month, whatever. So critics argue that these children participating in these mission trips, they just lack the cultural understanding. And so they can't effectively engage. And oftentimes they can be seen as being disrespectful if they don't understand the culture and they don't understand the way of life. So sometimes that leads to perpetuating stereotypes or engaging in activities that can be considered culturally insensitive or offensive. You're also oftentimes sending kids with limited skill sets. They simply lack the necessary skills and expertise to address these complex construction projects, but also the social issues that might be happening in these areas. So while their intentions may be good, their ability to contribute in a meaningful way may be limited. And they're really kind of end up doing some superficial work where a lot of people will argue, would it be better for the church or the funding organization to send the money and actually employ the people in that country or region who are actually qualified to do the work. So your lead, this often can lead to unsustainable solutions as well, because you're creating these short mission trips with young children and you're fostering this uh, culture of dependency instead of promoting self-sufficiency, which again, can promote a a dangerous and unhealthy, a disrespectful stereotype where you are implying that without the help of these children, this society or this culture cannot move forward. And the reality is these people very much want to be independent. They just lack the resources, probably because of colonialism or some, some other situation that's being caused by this type of perpetual system that requires that they rely on these unskilled children who are culturally insensitive to this region in which they've been dropped off in and supposedly supposed to be helping with build whatever it is that they're supposed to be building. It's also seen as a disruption in the local economy because oftentimes these mission trips rely on free goods and services from supporting or sponsoring organizations instead of actually working in cooperation and funding local businesses. You are bringing in outside resources for free to help 
feed these children, house them, give them the resources that they need. So it, it really does end up having all these te- typical trickle-down negative effects, not to mention the safety concerns. You oftentimes uh, are sending just as inexperienced, unskilled uh, sponsors or leaders in the the adults that are going, and they don't understand the health risk or the safety risk of the kids, and that creates a safety concern that's that's legitimate. It's also creating this kind of volunteerism, which is a word that means, oh yeah, I'm going to volunteer, but what I'm really going to do is go on vacation. So they might do a couple of hours of work in the morning and then just go off and this is where their opportunity to create their Instagram pictures that where they say they're doing all this wonderful work, but what they're really doing is wanting to just get the opportunity to go to a different country. And then last but not least, you have this whole ethical and religious thing, because a lot of times, especially when you're dealing with a high control evangelical type of religious organization, they say they're going to go dig wells, but what they're really going to do is quote, save souls. Because a a lot of times they're coming from these churches who believe that just not hearing about Jesus doesn't exclude you from going to hell. You will still go to hell if you do not accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But even if you haven't heard of him, proximity of distance between you and the evangelical Christian still can send you to hell. So they believe this. And so they feel like that that part of their mission trip is to get out and evangelize and turn people into Christians. And that means forcing their religious beliefs on them. In other words, I'm going to come help you dig this well, but then you're going to hear me preach. And the easiest thing for you to do, let's just get this over with. I'll stop preaching when you give your life to Christ. So it's a very unhealthy dynamic. And it's teaching these children to also look at people in other cultures in this way, I will give you something as long as you succumb to my beliefs and submit to my beliefs. So there are other people who will say, no, 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 that's not what's happening at all. But there is a rise in concern about these mission trips. And I understand that you don't want to be the only one not funding them, but this might be an opportunity for you to also consider what part of you is afraid to stand up for your your convictions, which tell you that this isn't right. And and maybe this is an opportunity for you to talk to your nephew to say, here's why I'm not going to fund you, but here's something I'm going to do to honor you. Maybe you can find a legit organization over there who's empowering the people in that country or in that region and saying, I'm going to give my money, I'm going to send $100 or whatever so that they can buy the power tools because they really want to do it themselves. And I'm going to do it in your honor. Because I, I, based on my beliefs and what I, what I know about mission trips, this is a better way to help the people in that area. So this it's, it's up to you, but those are, those are my reasons for not wanting to support mission trips. And I have supported them. Some of my children have gone on them, but I don't support them anymore. Okay. Next question. Oh yes. I have trauma. Could you please address the bastard child syndrome? I was born out of wedlock and was vilified for it. I cannot stress enough how much this hurt me. Being told you are illegitimate is a horrible feeling. This was part of the, you're going to hell, but pray anyway, crap. Yep. Yep. I heard it even by some Sunday school teachers talking about the bastard child. They didn't necessarily say that, but saying that some people who were born out of wedlock 
are going to have a harder time getting into heaven because the devil is really going to be more ingrained in them that you're going to have harder times. And speaking these kinds of words over children is a is truly happening in some churches, not all of them. So the bastard child uh, syndrome refers to this, the psychological or emotional impact on a child who is treated as an outsider or less than because only because they are what you might call illegitimate. And that's another stigmatizing ter term. It's just basically a child who was born outside of the traditional normal wedding standards. So a single mom. And so they're stigmatized and somehow they're to blame for the actions of the adult. Well, immediately you can talk about what kind of harm this is placing on the child for having feelings of shame and rejection and low self-worth for nothing that they have done. And when that's perpetuated by adults, the children that's in proximity and in relationship with that child are going to pick up on that and create a situation where that child is treated differently. And of course, that's going to lead to stigmatization, lack of opportunities, diminished opportunities, things like that, that's going to compromise the emotional and uh, psychological well-being of that child. And of course, it's unhealthy for families. And sometimes with even within a family system, a child will be mocked or condemned or rejected by other members of their family. I know people who have been rejected by their grandparents because of it or treated differently or said like, well, I'm leave them out of the will because they're not considered legit grandchildren, only the ones that were born inside the marriage are considered legit. So they're left out. Now healing from this, this is, this is a, a valid, disturbing, concerning, uh, traumatic experience and ongoing. And you can imagine how easily you could be triggered by hearing any of those words or not, if you haven't had a chance to go into any kind of therapy. And this does require, I believe, a structured therapy program that is multifaceted and can help you deal with this. So you can possibly be working with a spiritual counselor, a licensed mental health therapist, or whatever it is that you need to help support you to work through this because you're looking at self-acceptance, uh, learning to openly communicate, stand up for yourself. If someone says something negatively about you in that tone, how do you use your voice? How do you create boundaries? So you do that by practicing that in therapy and support. You got to rebuild trust. Who's going to be inside your inner circle? Anybody who sees you as differently should not be there. Sometimes we allow those people into our lives because of indoctrinated beliefs where we believe they have to be there because of our familial dynamics or our religious dynamics, whatever those are that say, well, that's my pastor and he thinks I'm a bastard child, but because I go to this church, I'm going to keep hearing that because he's part of my inner circle. That nonsense needs to be completely deconstructed from so that you understand that you have worth that you matter and nobody has the right to mitigate or diminish your value based on actions of adults around you. Your arrival here has little or nothing to do with you, dear soul. Who you are is who you are. 
So it's up to you with the help of your therapist and with those who are your advocates to help you establish new family norms and healthy relationships. And sometimes as difficult as it might be, if your people in your immediate family and your DNA family are not going to be a part to help you do that, to help you create those healthy places where you have acceptance and unconditional love and healthy relationships, then those are the ones that have to leave as well. So there's so many of us that have chosen people inside our inner circles and those that that makes such a difference with you have moving forward with people who you, who you can trust. So uh, using education and awareness, if you hear people using that term negatively, like if you say that your mom was single and someone says, oh yeah, you were a bastard child, cut that off as a very negative term and say, do not say that in my presence. Do not say that around children. That's stigmatizing and help unhelpful. And I spent my entire life trying to get away from that. So I'm going to ask you not to say that in my presence. If you continue to do so, then I cannot be in relationship with you and holding that place because you absolutely deserve to be free from that kind of stigmatization that's caused by people not realizing what their, their how harmful their words can be, but also the people who are accepting that as a reality, that somehow you should be treated less than because of something that happened to you prior to you being born, which has nothing to do with you. And we know that, again, that this can happen a lot in these highly controlled uh, patriarchal systems, especially in religious patriarchy, where they have to find any little way to control people. So if that's happening somehow in your church environment, then it's definitely time to find a church. So I'm going to really encourage you to make sure that you are seeking therapy and support, and that might be ongoing throughout your life. And that is absolutely okay. Trauma is not something that we can just say, put a bandaid on and say it's, it's fixed. It ebbs and flows. And as things happen in our lives, they new trauma triggers come up and it's time to revisit those. And every time we do, we get stronger, but it always, there's elements of it that we carry with us. So it's important that we pay attention and give ourselves the space that we need to heal. So I hope that helps. Okay. Next question. I had someone ask me how I teach my child morals and values. If I don't make him go to church or subscribe to a religion, my answer was simple. Religion doesn't equate to having a moral compass. How would you answer that? I'm interested in your viewpoint. Well, yeah. So how do you support, how do you support someone who, or help them have those morals and values without going to church? So in other words, someone is saying that the only way the only way you teach morals and values in it is in church. If that were true, then I would have seen only kind people coming from church. And we all know that's not true. Some of the most wicked, evil, corrupt, abusive, gaslighting, manipulative people I have ever met have been in church. So let's just clear that up right now. If church was the end all, that would not be the end result of many of the people that I saw coming through those church doors. So stop with that kind of air of superiority that people, so stop them right there with a phrase like that and say, but now if you'd like me to answer this question, I will, I will tell you how I do that. First of all, I lead by example. I'm not always perfect, but I do try to demonstrate ethical behavior and good morals in everything I do. And when I make mistakes, I own up to them and say how, how I'm going to take my mistake, learn from it 
and continue to, on my journey to try to be the best I can be. Uh, open communication, whereas making a place where children have a safe environment to ask questions instead of condemning them for not ask, answering questions or telling them like they do in church that you have a doubter's mind or some are our ways are not God's way. So some questions aren't just be answered. You just have to accept that this is the mystery of God. Those aren't healthy communication dynamics. That's not how we teach children that this is how you have healthy communications or how you solve problems. So having those open communications with children, give them a place where they know they always can come to the adults in their lives and ask questions, making sure that you, they understand what values are and why they're important to you and why they're important to your family dynamics and maybe coming together and create, creating those values together, making, helping them understand what empathy is and how that translates into the action that we do through kindness and compassion and whatever we do, we're encouraging critical thinking that we don't take anything at face value, especially if someone's preaching uh, religion to us, uh, the interpretation of the Bible, it's absolutely fine to be inspired by the Bible, but looking at alternative scriptures and interpret interpretations and translations so that the child learns how to use discernment when looking at scripture so that they don't take it from a literal stance that, that can risk weaponizing it sometime in the future engaging them in community involvement, that they understand that we elevate the human condition and leave the world a better place than we found it by helping others out who are in need, because we too may be in need sometime that they understand that any place where we stand in privilege, and privilege can be as simple as, as owning our own car, having our own home, when so many Americans are, people are suffering, that they understand that they come from a place of privilege, that someone else is always struggling more than they are. And then they can, you can also do it through encouraging personal reflection. All this means is that we are asking the child to pause and listen inward. We're not give, we don't have to give it a name. I call it the soul. You can call it the indwelling presence, the mystery, whatever you want, but this, this, this inner knowing, some people call it hunch. Some people call it these gut instincts that it it's there to help us. Now, the more that we try to force decisions, the quieter that inner knowing is going to get. So how can they, how can they learn to listen to that? A healthy religious environment, a healthy church would teach those things to uh, children. Instead, they often mitigate all those to say only what the church authority wants you to believe and what they've approved are the only things to teach a child. But a child who you want to have that uses healthy discernment and is coming from a moral code that is established in them because their, their true north is pointing them to try to be a good human, that can happen outside of organized religion just as easy. So I hope that helps. Okay. Um, if hell isn't real, then Satan wouldn't be real either. Okay. Well, um, if that's the case, why isn't the world perfect without temptations? Okay. So this is nothing but religious indoctrination. And I'm not saying this in a way to try to embarrass anybody, but that that's what this is. When you start talking about if hell isn't real. So I don't know if this person is really saying this to me as if 
I don't believe in, in hell, the literal hell. I deconstructed from that. I talk about that all the time. But the world be having dem- temptations and not believing in hell are two, two totally different teachings in my mind. So, but we can talk a little bit about hell and why its perceived existence has more to do with interpretation of biblical text. I mean, some individuals believe that the concept of hell is not supported by the interpretation of the Bible. I'm one of them. Um, We believe in this more metaphorical interpretation where you see this place where you have this spiritual separation from all that is good or the divine. And we have this consequences are is that our lives are miserable. But I believe that we came from love and to love is where we return. And I think there's so many different religious definitions where they're trying to explain what heaven is that I'm not tied to one of them as well. I'm certainly not tied to anything that's described in Revelation, which is where a lot of people want to point to what might look like. But we're also evolving about our theological understanding and what people believe that that has changed over time. Even if you look at some of what people believed in the Bible, that changed over time. And so what people thought about this place, this this, uh, holding place, if you will, after death that was called Sheol, uh, Sheol, Sheol, Um, That changed over time. It it evolved into a place where people thought, well, if you're a bad person, you're just going to end up staying there forever. And that's how you ended up getting this concept of hell. But at first, it was just this holding place that said, we go here before we go on into some kind of everlasting existence. But, and we can continue on this. I, I have some notes here about why it's important to, in my mind, to reject eternal punishment because I don't need that as a motivating factor in this life to be a good person. Fear-based theology was just another way to weaponize scripture to keep people in the pews. So this physical hell and, and creation of the devil became something that said, if you don't, if you don't go to church, if you don't believe as I do, then this is what's going to end up happening to you. This thing about temptations is part of the human condition. This question is also implying that if hell is real, then the existence of of Satan or or the devil is real as well. And that's how temptation comes. Well, that's a cop out because what you're saying there is that by definition, the devil tempts me. And I succumb to that as if my my will is weak and I succumb to that. And it removes me from responsibility because I then don't have actual agency over my life. The devil does. And this whole concept, I believe, came out of the need to for a patriarchy to create a way where, and you see it all the time. It just literally just happened last year when a Indiana pastor wanted to admit to the abuse of a 16-year-old girl in his church. And when she got up and held him accountable, when he tried to call it an inappropriate relationship and she flat out said what it was and it was abuse, the entire congregation got around and prayed with him. She was over in the corner with just a couple of women holding her comforting her, but almost the entire congregation is comforting him because he was tempted. He fell into temptation. It was not anything to do with him. He is still a man of God, but he fell into this temptation because the devil is so evil. 
Now, so this this tent this concept of temptation can be this external thing that where I'm absolved of responsibility, where I then don't own my mistakes because I can always say that the devil did it. If you want to see a video that proves this better than anything, go find the Jimmy Swaggered video from the early 80s where he uh, was caught in prostitution, in a prostitution ring. And he then came and did this amazing acting job where he's crying and eyes up to the sky. I have sinned against you, my God, my Lord. And guess what? Jimmy Swaggart is still in the pulpit. Now, I'm not saying that people can't change, but he immediately turned this into a place where temptation was the issue, that temptation caused this because the devil is seeking, is lurking around every corner to destroy your soul. No, we have decisions to make every day as human beings. And they, some of them are right and some of them are wrong. And when we are wrong, we take accountability for them. That can still lead to a strong spiritual existence, a, spirit, a strong spirituality. But the only way that we are going to elevate the human condition, leave this world a better place than we found it, integrate our spirituality with our humanness, which I believe is why we're here when we're hyper-focused on heaven, then that serves a, a religious patriarchy existence because I then am believing that my spirituality, that my soul is contingent upon my religious connection that will get me to heaven. But when I turn it and face it to the earth, to the world in which I live. No one has agency over that except me. Yes, I can still be in spiritual community. Yes, I can still go to church. But I understand that it's more about my choices as a human being that show where my spirituality is. Am I pointing to my true north? Every day, am I making decisions that allow me to show up as a better version of myself? Am I doing the inner work so I can turn back to my life, a better version of myself and be present and loving and kind for the people in my life? If I'm not, then my spirituality is broken. This has nothing to do with the hell and the devil. It has everything to do with me. So that indoctrinated belief is a trope. That indoctrinated belief is a, is a escapism. And I find little biblical validation for it. If you need hell, this is another one of those things where if you need hell and the devil to exist, you'll go right to the Bible and you'll find it. I do not. So when I read the Bible, I do not see that because you any, any theological understanding that you need to have of the Bible, you can make the Bible say what you need it to say. That's why I think it's very dangerous for us to be entrenched in one of those values, anything that you needed to say that's going to weaponize scripture, put you in a place of moral and spiritual superiority over another, it becomes religious oppression. Now, if hell serves your spirituality and the existence of devil serves your spirituality and that helps you stay focused on your true north, then go for it. But my, my feeling is, is if you're here and you're watching my videos, then you are already moving away from that or shifting away from that. And this is something that you're still trying to deconstruct from. So I hope so. But if not, 
take what you take what you need from the Bible and continue with that belief. Obviously, I have deconstructed from that. So uh, we've gone over 30 minutes there and I have like three other questions. So I'm going to save them for the next time because there's a really good question about paganism and uh, a couple other things that we will come to at the next. We try to do this a couple times a month because we have hundreds of questions that I try to get to, but it's just impossible. So we thought this was a great way to start to answer some of your questions. Okay, thank you for listening, beloved. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on my YouTube channel, Spirituality Matters with Rev Carla. And you can connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And be watching my website at revcarla.com for my upcoming courses and live teaching event, including Sacred Conversations with Rev Carla and coming soon, Sundays with Rev Carla. I'm honored to be in this space with you. Go in peace and be at peace. Go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.